Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello out there in Archaeology Podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Looking at uh, episode 103, we're going to talk about dating some of the oldest rock art ever discovered in North America going to be exciting. We're going to talk about direct dating and obsidian hydration dating and what some of this uh, oldest rock art might mean and what it looks like. Welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, everybody. This is your usually producer and editor, Chris Webster. But today, as we've done in the past, I'm interviewing Alan. Alan, welcome to your show. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you, Chris. It's, it's always a joy and a, a wonder when you and I have a chance to uh, share our repartee. And, uh, yeah, it's been a, and, and give us. It's, yeah, been, it's a been a while since we did one of these. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I usually wait until I can think of something that's very topical, very, very interesting and, and needs to be discussed. And I think mm-hmm. there's a sub- subject we can, uh, we can all agree is, is rather interesting. Yes. And we are going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, the dating of things, because as an archaeologist, I mean, honestly, we all talk about, oh, I want to know this and I want to do this. But really, we want to know how old something is every single time. That's like the the first question that we want to know is how old is the thing? And then we can learn about what the thing tells us about other stuff. Right. So dating exactly, of rock art exactly. is exactly dating of rock art is notoriously difficult. And we're going to talk about that in a very particular context today. Excellent. Be a lot of fun. Yes. So we are going to talk about some of the oldest rock art in North America. Let's start with setting that stage. Yeah, let's talk about that. We have had a, a real challenge in trying to understand the antiquity of rock art. And rock art, especially petroglyphs, don't leave much to date. But there's typically no organic material to capture. And radiocarbon dating on petroglyphs, rock drawings, is not really a, a feasible way because there's nothing organic to date, typically. But there was an exception to that, and that was in the Great Basin. And that was uh, something that had a, a newsworthy item. Where was that, uh, Doctor? Where did we find that uh, famous antiquity of rock art? If memory serves, that was in the Winnemucca Lakes area of northern Nevada. That's exactly right. And the problem was, what they found was there's a, a, some sort of a, a surficial calcium coating that picks up the organics, and it covers mm. the rock art. And so what they did was, at certain times, when the lake was higher 
the rock art was covered, completely covered. Yeah. And so they were able to pour into this calcareous sort of envelope on that rock art and begin to examine its age. They knew that it was old and it was rather distinctive in its character. Now, this is not not the common rock art that you might uh, see everywhere you see it. You, you see rock art and most of it is rather surficial. It is uh, pecked out on some sort of a, you know, canvas, which is typically something that is uh, sandstone or granite, but often it's basalt and it has a desert varnish coating. Now, this rock art in Wainamaka Lake was on some sort of a, a white limestone type of base. Mm-hmm. When they were able to excavate and peer into this particular envelope, they found that there was a way to sandwich the rock art between two ages. One was about 14,000 years ago, and the other was about 10,500 years ago. Hmm. So it was some somewhere in that middle between the oldest date and the youngest date. They both are late Pleistocene. Now, that would be a time that typically we talk about having some of the uh, earliest or the basement cultures. And when does the Pleistocene date to? Well, the Pleistocene uh, terminates at 10,000. Yeah. And so it's on the bubble right there. Now, when we think of the earliest cultures up until relatively you know, recent, we would talk about something called Clovis. Clovis was the, is the basement culture for yeah. the Americas, and it was a, a unique expression and one that was originally identified with Clovis, New Mexico. It's why they call it Clovis. And mm-hmm. the hallmark of Clovis is a fluted projectile point. And these are beautiful cryptocrystalline, very rarely obsidian, but beautiful lancelate dart or spear points that have a very significant flake taken out of its base and thinned, and that's called a flute. And usually that flute is either on one side or, or I think more commonly on both sides. And they believe that that flute may have had something to do with the ability of that particular weapon, that mm. uh, armature, armature, to pierce the uh, skin of, a, of an animal and cause it to continue to bleed. Right. They w- it would bleed out. And they wanted that to happen because then they could actually kill and uh, acquire that uh, animal for food. So that's, that's the way we were thinking about archaeology until relatively recently. Clovis was the basement culture, the first expression. It kind of arrived on the scene at about 13,000 maybe 250 years ago, and continued to, let's say, 12,800 or so years ago. And it was a very ubiquitous expression. Yeah, It was all over the place very quickly. And it was associated with megafauna. They did uh, hunt for those uh, mammoths and mastodons and camel and other megafaunal animals. 
which went extinct during the uh, late Pleistocene. So all of that was the story that we've been living with for many, 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 many years. Well, recently that whole scenario has been upended. It's been turned on <laughs> its head. Now you're aware of that, are you, uh, Chris? A little bit, yeah, but I'm interested to hear more. Well, we, we thought that that was about as early as we could get with Paleo-Indian or ancient peopling of the Americas, that that was the beginning of the immigration or in-migration of Native people into the continent. Mm -hmm. And we had also sketched a scenario that that corridor or that pathway that those Native Americans entered North America was an ice-free corridor coming up through the Bering Strait and moving across Canada into the United States, right. across the Bering Land Bridge. So that was the story. Mm -hmm. Well, as we, as we began to study this information further and further, they found that that particular land bridge and that corridor closed at about what? I think it was about in the neighborhood of, let's say, 13,500 or 14,000 years ago. Okay. And anything earlier than that would not have had a pathway, a land bridge, a corridor, a land corridor to travel from Asia into the Americas. Well, if they can't get right. in that way, how'd they get here? Right. You know, some of the theories that go through my head are following the shoreline through various means, you know, following uh, food sources along the shoreline of the northern Pacific Ocean, which would have been horrendous <laughs> during the in, the in the end of an ice age. Right? right. I can't even imagine how that would have been because it would have it wouldn't have been like a, a couple weeks journey. It would have been years and years and years and, and generations that people spent traveling this direction and, and basically moving down this way. And then there's, there's those other theories where, you know, people came south from South America and east from the northeastern United States as well. So right. some we have better information for than others. <laughs> so one of my colleagues, a very smart man who teaches in Oregon, came up with the idea. He called it the uh, Pacific Kelp Highway hypothesis. Yeah. That they were moving in boats, maritime people and sort of clicking off and stopping at various spots and moving along the coast and then moving into from the Pacific Northwest and even in, from California mm -hmm. across into the far west and into the plateau and into the Northwest Coast and into the Great Basin. So this was all working hypothesis. Absolutely no evidence for that originally. Right. Well, as, as luck would have it, a number of researchers began to explore areas that they felt would have very, very early, perhaps even what they call pre-Clovis aboriginal activities. And they did that in Oregon. They did that in Idaho. They did that in South America as well. Mm -hmm. and, and lo and behold, they began to acquire artifacts that appeared to be older than the oldest Clovis material, mm, which right. would have been older than about 13,000 
250 years ago. Well, that that changes everything. Yeah. If they were here that early and they could not migrate through that ice-free corridor, they had to move along the coast. They had to come in boats and then they had to move some way or other into North America via watercraft. Now, mm-hmm. another little sidebar was the artifacts that they found that are earlier than Clovis are not fluted. They're not Clovis points. Right. They are what they call Western stemmed projectile points. Yes. So they, they're unfluted and they have a kindred connection to a type of point that is simply, uh, you know, narrow and shouldered and sort of even a convex or straight based, but mm-hmm. something that, that we did not know would have continued as a projectile point type for thousands upon thousands of years. And so first we began finding things like at some of the dry caves. And so mm-hmm. the dry caves were interesting. They said, well, if we've got these copper lights, these preserved fecal matter things, we can date them and plus we can identify if they have human DNA on them and if they are human, and they were. And then they began to find an association with those that were datable, talking about 14,000 or more years ago, they found these Western stemmed projectile points and no fluted points, not at all. Right. These were completely earlier than any, uh, and there were no antecedents from those Clovis points to show they appeared to have been, been uh, you know, f- almost brought forth, fully birthed, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, they, and they are autochthonous. They originated here in North America and have no earlier antecedents. Right. But the Western stem points continue for thousands and thousands of years. It looks like, first of all, we found them at 14,000. And then they, another site went back to 16,000 years ago. That 14,000-year-old site was Paisley Caves in southern Oregon, was it not? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. That's what I thought. What's the 16,000-year-old site? I don't think I remember hearing about that or I forgot about it. That's over in Idaho. Over in Idaho. That had, makes sense. All the good stuff's up there, right? Yeah. And so I've been talking to the uh, discoverer of that those Idaho finds, and um, mm-hmm. he believes that there's even stuff earlier than that, like sure. 17, 18, 19, or even 20,000 years old wow. that they've got there, and they're waiting to corroborate that. So that's really a huge game changer with that whole different look of understanding this much more ancient uh, expression and one that was fed by a maritime set of uh, corridors or in-migration routes. I mean, that changes everything. Yeah, it really does. So as a bit of infotainment from all of my listeners, I happen to be working on the largest and most expensive culture resource project of my entire 50-year career right now. It's an $8 million project. That's how much the culture resources cost. It is, for, it is wow. in Douglas County, Oregon, and it has to do with a, the largest fire that they've ever had in that county. And it burned mm. hundreds of thousands of acres. I think they had 
80,000 trees they had to cut down. And uh, when they went in there, and since the ground had been burned, so it was a very hot fire, we got to see everything in the ground <laughs> for a change. And if you've, and if you've yeah. ever seen Oregon, yeah. you don't see much on the ground. It's covered by, by vegetation. So when they went in there yeah. and they did the survey to protect the sites and try to preserve them and do what they could, every place they looked, they found sites. And the sites that they found that they thought were small became huge. And the amount of material, <laughs> the amount of temporally diagnostic material that we began to see was enormous. So uh, all of that showed that the uh, occupations were larger, the sites were larger, the sites were richer. But the reason I bring this up is uh, we had a chance to do what's called obsidian hydration dating, source-specific temperature-adjusted obsidian mm-hmm. hydration dating. And I mean hundreds of those uh, particular measurements. And this was using the state-of-the-art methodologies. Let's talk about obsidian hydration dating on the other side of the break, because I think we want to talk about that a little more, because it's it's a really important technique. Before we go to break, I've got some links that I've been taking while you've been talking. And so look down at your show notes, everybody that's listening to this. There's some pretty good stuff in the show notes. I've also got links to Dr. Garfinkel's website and his Patreon page. So check those out as well. And we'll be back on the other side of the break to keep talking about this back in a minute. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to episode 103 of the Rock Hard Podcast. And this is Chris Webster interviewing Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we're talking about dating some of the oldest rock art in North America and a lot of stuff that goes along with that. This isn't a simple topic. And when we left, you were talking about this massive effort that you're working on in Oregon after a, a huge fire and some of the obsidian hydration dating that they were doing on, of course, obsidian projectile points. So what, what is obsidian hydration dating? Well, how does that work? Well, you know, we've had our friend Sandy Rogers, and he talked about what that was. He's one of the pioneers mm-hmm. and one of the state-of-the-art experts on this, and he moved up to Washington. Volcanic glass has the ability to pick up water and diffuse it. Water molecules go into it when there's a fresh break, and it produces a rind, a measurable rind in microns. Mm-hmm. And that particular thickness of that rind and the chemistry, the geochemistry of the obsidian, the volcanic glass, as to its source and geographical proclivities, and also the temperature regime within the site itself, the location, can produce an equation that can give us a reasonable estimate with 
considerable accuracy on the age of that artifact and when that particular artifact was fashioned. You can do this on projectile points. You can also do this on, on flakes and all kinds of volcanic glass. What you want is you want ways to, to cross-correlate it. So you want radiocarbon dates or you want uh, ages of projectile points or you want other means of tagging or associating the rim readings to the actual true calendar dates. And the more information you have on those particular relationships, the greater precision you can have on the age of the artifact. Plus, if you get larger and larger numbers of these readings on more and more artifacts, you can get a better and more precise age determination. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I remember doing a big project across Nevada where we sent a lot of stuff in for obsidian hydration dating. And of course, you know, we don't necessarily like to do that if we don't have to, because it is a destructive uh, dating method, unlike some others, because you usually have to cut a little notch in it to actually measure that rind, right? That is um, is correct. What I've forgotten to uh, tell you is that basically to acquire that uh, reading, you need a thin mm -hmm. section. So you Mm -hmm. have to cut, cut the artifact on its edge using a you know, a geological saw. And then you grind down that, that particular piece, that chip off the side of the artifact until it's paper thin, and then you can read it. Right. So it does, it is destructive to a point. But, but you can do this on flakes, you can do this on, on obsidian uh, points, you can do it on darts, etc., etc. Yeah. And, and I guess I was blessed because I was one of the pioneers in terms of developing not the method, but using the data to determine ages. Hmm. Way back when I, I began it using it on, um, on Casa Diablo Obsidian from California. And we used the, the midpoints of temporally diagnostic, of time-sensitive projectile points and the information about those particular readings on those artifacts to establish an equation an equation that would predict if you had a reading of a hydration rim, what the age of that artifact would be. I think you understand, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that's what we had done. And um, surprisingly enough, my initial approximation was quite accurate and quite Hmm. close to the um, equations which are used to this very day. And uh, Sandy Rogers has been one of the pioneers on this and has published extensively trying to uh, move the edge, learn more and, and grasp more and control more of the variability and the variables that might affect this kind of uh, exercise. And so uh, we happen to have some of the smartest and best people in the world doing our obsidian hydration dating on this mm. Oregon project. And we did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I think it was 400 or 500 uh, readings on the materials that we had. And the reason I mentioned this in light of our discussion was we found readings that based on their equations date to 18,000 years ago for artifacts. Wow. Wow. So now in the older days, <laughs> we would say, oh, that's an outlier. It's a wrong, wrong date. Da, 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 da. But given some of our, our newer assignments, and the newest understandings of some of the antiquity of the Aboriginal activities that appear to be 
associated with the in-migration, the peopling of the Americas, those are not unreasonable dates. Those could actually be valid. Hmm. We could have an 18,000-year-old artifact. We could have a a 16 or 15,000-year-old artifact. They've got dates now that show that there is aboriginal activity, human use of North America coming in minimally at 16,000 and probably older. Hmm. Wow, that's really cool. And so there's a sea change going on. It has to do with rethinking the whole possibilities of when and how and where the initial migrations into America took place and how that transpired. When you look at a map of where you find Paleo-Indian remains, the Clovis material is in southeastern United States, out around mm-hmm. Texas. It's, it's a hotbed there, and that may have been one of the migrational routes through that area and up into the area of the American Southwest and onto the plains. But the right. chances are they did that through some sort of watercraft. Real quick, back to obsidian hydration dating. I wonder if there's been any talk about this because I've never thought to look it up. But you mentioned, I mean, that area in Oregon that you guys were working, that was affected by fire. Obviously, for that area, over the course of the last 18,000 years, that wasn't the only fire to go through there. In fact, there's probably been hundreds, if not thousands of fires to go through there. That's just how nature works, right? Do we yes. know if the effects of forest fire, that extreme heat that happens, has any impact on the overall rind formation on the obsidian for obsidian hydration dating? And I'm, I'm wondering that because I know that rind is only microns thick and takes centuries and centuries to actually grow depending on the environment that the obsidian is in. Obviously, it's a more moist environment. It's going to grow a lot quicker. If it's a more dry environment, it's going to grow slower. But, you know, does that relatively quick, geologically speaking, fire that goes through there have any impact on that, I wonder? You know, because we, we don't know how many fires happened in the past. That, that's almost impossible to tell. I can answer that question very confidently. We um, okay. ran all the projectile points that we found on surface, on the surface of the ground from that fire. And all of them didn't have any obsidian hydration rooms. So they were all reduced or vanished from the fire. Wow. Okay. Now, where we got all the readings were from subsurface below 10 centimeters or even a little bit deeper than that, uh, Hmm. down to the, about a meter in depth. And so, most all of our readings, I would say 98% of them, are from subsurface contexts, so that they would at least be insulated from some of the, you know, the recurrent fires. Well, which begs the question, before it was actually buried through geological processes, you wonder if it was reset, so to speak, with a yes. forest fire, which would inherently make everything you're seeing possibly older anyway, yeah, which is even yeah. more fascinating. <laughs> yeah. No, but you're right. You're right. And so, yeah. especially working in Oregon, that's certainly something to consider. And yeah. our, our friends mentioned that in their research. When we look at that kind of thing in the Great Basin, you don't have that, that level of intensity or fires. And so you would have much less of an impact on the on your calendar, your clock, your obsidian clock. So mm-hmm. that would be less less invasive and less less of a uh, possibility. My uh, yeah. colleague who alerted me 
I published an article on the um, paleo Indian remains that are right there on the eastern skirt of the Sierra Nevadas, a site called the Borden site, which had fluted points and basically thin points as well. They were all obsidian. And some of the uh, rinds were enormously large for obsidian hydration dating. Mm. And the dates would have gone back to 14, 15, even 16 or 17,000. And of course, wow. they were ruled, ruled out as unreasonable. But given some of our newer understanding of the potential age and in migrations and activities, ancient cultural activities for the late Pleistocene, maybe they're not so wild. Maybe there is some limited activity that goes back to that age. So it, hmm. it opens up a whole different perspective. You know, speaking of perspective, I, I'm wondering how we're ever going to answer this question. Who got here first, right? When, when, was right. The, when was the actual first peopling of the Americas? And what is the smoking gun? Because it seems like it seems like short of having some rock art that we can date to 18,000 years ago that shows people in boats, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. short of yeah. having something that says we were here and here's how we did it. We're basically looking for the oldest spot in North America and, and obviously South America as well. What is the oldest thing? Because the older we get, obviously people were there. If we can prove people were there and then the older and older and older you get, you can keep going back and saying, okay, well, this is older than over there, so they must have been here first. That also assumes that people only got here one time, which people right. probably got here lots of times from lots of different areas. Well, America is something that's a little different because when it was initially populated, it was very late in time, late, late to the party, as we called it. Yeah. Because uh, there just wasn't people here very early compared to all the other continents were far more uh, ancient. Mm -hmm. Additionally, if you look at a if you study languages, right, and you look right. at the genetic genetics of it, there's there's a genetic clock and a linguistic clock, and now we have an archaeological clock, and they all seem to be timed to about twenty thousand years ago. Would be about the about the most ancient that would seem to be reasonable for a um, initial populating of the Americas, mm -hmm. both looking at the language and the genetics of it all. Now. There is a taste of even more ancient material in South America, and that has always been rather controversial, but mm -hmm. uh, that's a whole other question. <laughs> right. Right. So anyways, if I jump back and start talking about this kind of rock art that we find that dates to what we're looking at is sort of the late Pleistocene, early Holocene. It's called Great Basin Carved Abstract. Great Basin Carved Abstract. Okay. So you may have seen some of that, Chris, mm -hmm. when you were looking at the, the uppermost parts of Little Petroglyph Canyon. Okay. And it, if you look at the walls of that canyon, there's almost sculptural rock art. It's that they dug and excavated almost it went it went into a concavity and it appears to almost be contoured around the rocks so it's a it's a whole different kind of a of a technology or strategy for producing these images that are exclusively abstract they're they're wavy lines they're chevrons there's a sort of circuitous and serpentine kinds of figures 
but there is no naturalistic or realistic subject matter during this earliest rock art period. But what there is is a very distinctive style of definitionally crafting an expression of imagery. Hmm. And I've thought about this a bit. I even listened to some of my earlier podcasts, and I was shocked to hear a discussion of this that seemed to make some sense. There's something about grinding or polishing or smoothing or digging out of some sort of a, a deposit or a rock or some creating some sort of a of an artifact that has religious or theological implications mm-hmm. communicating power power and might and activity and sacredness etc and so this particular grinding and regrinding and effort that has been placed on this earliest rock art must have had a function or a significance and a, and a meaning. And there was an archaeologist who spoke about this and sort of talked about it almost akin to the grinding and polishing of some of the more beautiful objects that we uh, see in the archaeological record. And he thought that that had to do with the intensity, the the particular recreation or activity and the effort necessary to create those images and imbue them with power. Does that make any sense? That does. And that leads to a whole bunch more things I want to talk about. And let's do that when we come back. But in the meantime, take a look down at the links in your show notes. We do have pictures of some of these things at some of those links. So it will really help out. I've got an article on the Winnemucca Lake petroglyphs and something on Paisley Caves as well. And of course, Dr. Garfinkel's resources. So check those out. We'll be back in a minute. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to the third and final segment of episode 103 of the Rock Art Podcast. And, you know, I'm wondering, when you were talking about the the style of petroglyphs that is at the Winnemucca Lake site and, you know, the, the shapes of it, the abstract nature of it. I'm wondering if other rock art in other parts of the world, notably Europe and probably Australia and, and even Asia for that matter of the same time period, if that follows along with that style of rock art. And, and I think the initial answer is probably not really all that much because you can see images of animals and things going back 25 to 35,000 years in in Europe. But it sounds like all the rock art that was the oldest we've seen in, in North America is still sort of in the abstract phase and not really in the, you know, drawing animals phase yet. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. It's some, something that's been a, a very, very enigmatic characteristic. There was a book published recently about the uh, enigmatic abstract early archaic rock art. And I don't know if they really grapple with that question. It's a mysterious one in the sense that um, why in Europe, in the old world, do we have these ultra-realistic imageries 
images mm-hmm. of animals that have power and vitality. And, oh, my word, they're just magnificent. And here in yeah. Americas, we have these, uh, I wouldn't say primitive, but they're, they're simple and they're elegant mm-hmm. and they're powerful, but they're purely abstract and they're non-representational and not realistic. So I can't answer that question. I don't understand what was the driver or the engine that created those different platforms. It makes me wonder if we examined rock art around the world and looked for similar styles, but that are, you know, maybe two or three to to five or 7,000 years older, assuming maybe it took that up to that long to to come from wherever that is to, to wherever this is. If we could look at that and see if that matches up with, say, the genetic and linguistic clocks. I'm sure somebody's done that study, but it's just making me think about that kind of association. Just looking at other rock art and saying, well, do we see these styles somewhere else? And does the genetic and linguistic clock match up? And not only that, but the, the ability to even get here and where that could have been. Does that even make sense? You know what I mean? Yeah. And... One of the things that it's unusual about the rock art that I've looked at most often in the Kosos is that the most ancient rock art, after this Great Basin carved abstract, pops in and becomes rather realistic, rather ornate, very uh, elaborate and fine-grained, and rather magnificent in its execution. Very impressive. Very beautiful, and, and people are impressed by these uh, depictions of, of animals and, and decorated animal human figures. Mm-hmm. Why is that? That's quite unusual. That's not something that um, is you know, characteristic of these kind of evolution of an artistic tradition. Right. Something went on there that's uh, a little different. I know that when I've read some of the earliest works on Kosa rock art, they talk about a uh, island of rock art, you know, an isolated island of artistic tradition. Right. It is interesting. I have a book coming out in the next month or two that talks mm-hmm. about trying to explain these enigmas. So this is the one we'll, with Trifa. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll wait on talking yeah. about that. Then there was a master's thesis that was just completed, examining this uh, early carved Great Basin carved abstract rock art. And the way she dated it was looking at the associations of time-sensitive early Holocene and late Pleistocene projectile points and those correlations hmm. with those particular sites. And she was able to pinpoint them and date them just looking at the ubiquity, the, the proliferation, the tremendous frequency of finding these ancient diagnostic points in association with these sites. Now, besides that, she noted that environmentally, that there's a correlate of the locations of these sites as their upland, you know, 3,000 feet or higher mm-hmm. locations, and that this may have been associated with uh, a land use pattern where the native people early on were harvesting what she called geophytes. These are those bulb plants, the plants that have bulbs or tubers. And I think she may have something going on there because I do know that some of these areas are proliferation of those kinds of plants that I know were very useful early on and easy to harvest and also quite tasty and 
would would provide <laughs> solace to the uh, native people. So, anyways, there's that one too. It's interesting talking about the elevation as well because I, I can vividly see that in my mind because I've driven by the the Winnemucca. It's a dry lake now. Yeah. Uh, Winnemucca is, yeah. and in fact, this year it might have water in it, given all the snow that's happened in the Sierras and <laughs> the water that's coming through there. Uh, but it sure. won't last for long. Yeah, but Winnemucca is a, a really long north-south oriented, also incredibly wide, dry lake bed, and any one of the sort of dry playas that you can see in uh, especially northern Nevada used to have water in them around the time that we're talking about. And that's why your older sites are up higher, right? Because there was water down in the lower sites and you can you can Absolutely. see the sites, you can see the ages get younger and younger as you get closer and closer to the, you know, to the older shorelines until it dried up completely. And it's really cool because you can look out across the landscape, as you know, and see some of the places where the shoreline was relatively consistent for a while because it's it's like layers on the stratigraphy because you can see those, oh, you know, there's a shoreline there, there's a shoreline there, there's a shoreline there. That's where you look for sites if you want to look for older sites as you look up in that area. So, And you can, and you can date the occupations precisely yeah. by the elevations of those, of those shorelines. Sure. And, and that was done with China Lake as well, that we can look at those specifically mm -hmm. and associate a particular time period or an episode of occupation that should have X, Y kinds of projectile points and a particular kind of chronological specificity in that particular mm -hmm. precise location. It's fascinating. It's really wonderful. Do you remember... The study you mentioned just a few minutes ago with the projectile points in association with the rock art. Do you remember how it was determined that those projectile points were actually in association with the rock art? If they're just sitting on the ground and you got stuff sitting on a wall and rocks and you got stuff sitting on the ground, how do we know conclusively that those are related to each other? We don't. And and that was done right. also for the, for the work that was done at, the, at China Lake as well. Mm -hmm. All we know is that if we can identify physically what occurs nearby or close or in some sort of a association. And then we can date it and we can look at enough sites and get some mm. sort of cor correlation between right. what, what is occurring and where it's located. And if that pattern appears to be uh, persuasive and if you're finding an overrepresentation of certain projectile point forms in association with those kinds of sites, then you got your answer. The same okay. thing was done with obsidian hydration and another researcher did that. She used the obsidian that was there laying around at the base of the projectile points at the base of the rock art sites and looked for narrow segments of time that were represented. Mm -hmm. So if we had a, a single component representation, perhaps it, it targeted or associated with that particular site. And that kind of a association, that correlation worked extremely well to place those sites in time. Yeah. So on and on and on we go. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, in the last couple of minutes here, what are some final thoughts we want to have on this uh, oldest rock art in North America? I don't think rock art is impossible to date. I think if we're creative and we can uh, come after it using uh, a whole bevy of techniques and cross-correlate them and evaluate mm -hmm. them independ independently. We can get at 
a reasonable estimate of the age of rock art. I've been privy to that using various techniques. I think people look at rock art and don't have a sense of what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. And one has to really spend a tremendous amount of time looking at the rock art, understanding where it is, what it is, and then understanding enough of it and its associations. Finally, after that long association and that intense scholarship, one can then ask some fairly good probing questions about their age. And sometimes it gives up a date. (laughs) Right. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, I think we'll close out the show. It's been awesome having this discussion and I always look forward to these, of course. It's really fun doing this kind of stuff and I hope we can continue doing this in the future. So thank you all. See you in the flip-flop. Sounds good. Don't forget to look down at your device or on the website that you're looking at this on for all the links we have related to this show. And of course, Alan's resources, including his website and his Patreon, where you can get some fun extra stuff and also support these efforts because... While we don't get paid to do this, it's also not free to do and takes a lot of time and effort and resources. And it's nice to, to get a little kickback from the listeners for that. So, But you're not paying for nothing. Go there and see what you can get on that Patreon. That would be amazing. And the link is in the show notes. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.